Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, we're going to take a journey with a woman that was an occupational therapist working on a psychiatric unit to being a patient in a psychiatric ward. Her experience with mental illness, anxiety, and depression behind the still door will open your eyes to the stigma of mental health. You're going to learn how she took the first steps to recovery, to use the tools that were given to her to move her life forward, and how you can do the same thing. I'm your host, Michael Hurst, and this is Mental Illness from Both Sides of the Metal Door. My guest in this episode is Sandy Trevino Ray. She's a mental health community advocate and worker. She's an author and a mother. Welcome to the show, Sandy. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me. I appreciate it. You got an amazing journey. I read part of your book. I haven't had the opportunity to read the whole thing so far. You, uh, you're very enlightening, and uh, I think this is going to be a very interesting conversation for the listeners from where you came, yeah, where you came from, and where you're at now. Oh, I'm so glad. Uh, where'd you grow up? I actually grew up in a really small town in southern Minnesota, where um, everyone around me was blonde hair and blue eyed, and I kind of stuck out because I am not. I have brown skin, brown hair, brown eyes. So um, grew up with a mom that was a Mexican restaurant owner and a dad that was a cop. This works in Minnesota too. It's cold up there. It is very cold. So what was your family like? You said, you said was, your father was a cop too. He was. He was a cop for um, most of his life. And then my mother ran a Mexican restaurant, which I grew up in. I was there cooking and learning to waitress. And um, it was just me and my sister and just really learned a lot about the community because they would come into the restaurant. So um, at first, not super welcoming. They just were afraid. They weren't quite sure of what to think of this Mexican family. But um, as they got to know our food and got to know us personally, it changed all the way around. Is there a large community, Mexican community or Latino community in Minnesota? You know what? It wasn't in my small town. In the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul area, much more diverse up there. But in my small town, there really wasn't. We were pretty much the only family for a number of years. And your father was a police officer. I, we have, I have to ask you about that. Obviously, you spent it sure. a couple of times. But as you know, I have a law enforcement background. And, yeah, um, so we, yeah. We're brothers in a, blue, see? Absolutely, absolutely. So I totally understand that voice, that cop voice that you were talking about. So I lived with it. So he was a cop for a number of years, became assistant chief of police, and he loved his job. Um, he was very involved in the community, and I really re respected all that he did. You have any siblings? Only one, just one younger sister, and she also grew up in the in that small town, and also um, kind of raised in that restaurant environment. Well, I know you you've got uh, like a, a, a mental health or the health field uh, background. Did you go to college? Go to university? I did. I did. I went and got a bachelor's degree, and then I went and got a master's degree. And so I've been an occupational therapist for a little over twenty five years now. Absolutely love it. I love helping people um, in different areas, not only physically, but I really came to like the mental health area. And because of my own journey, I related so much to what they might have been going through. So what? tell me, help us understand what a, uh, an occupational therapist does. Sure, sure. So what an occupational therapist does is really take a look at whatever um, disability or trauma or accident or um, disease might have occurred in someone's life. So that could go anywhere from having a stroke in the rehab area all the way to chemical dependency issues or someone with um, 
borderline personality or schizophrenia. So it's really about the holistic view of the person and it's getting them back to their occupation or their activities of daily living. So an occupation could be a student having a hard time and their job is really sitting at a desk and paying attention to a teacher versus someone that really can't hold down to the job because they're stuck in bed with depression. So it just really um, is getting the person back to the occupation of life. That's interesting. What got you interested in that? Really, it was my journey um, because I felt um, really unworthy and I kind of stuck out because I wasn't like anybody else. So a little bit of bullying and um, just feeling like I didn't couldn't find my way. So I knew what that felt like to feel different. And I really made it a point to go to school for something where I could help others, whether it was a disability or um, bullied or just somehow they felt different. I wanted to make sure that I could help them. I know that um, through what you had sent me and what we kind of mentioned, talked about, you obviously had just had uh, suffered from depression. Uh, did that happen prior to? I mean, I'm assuming that's part of the bullying and part of the other issues. So did you, when you went into this field, um, at what point in your life did you recognize that you had depression? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say in between uh, middle school and high school, that really kind of... Um, you could see it um, more day to day because people have glimpses of down days or um, could be anxiety days or depression days. But it really took a hold when um, I was later middle school, early um, high school, where it was one of those things where I really didn't want to get out of bed. So that's when I really noticed that something was very different and I needed to seek help. So it's, so it's something just to clarify, something different than just the blues from not wanting to go to school. Um, because teenagers, teenagers go through a lot of changes in their life at that time period. You know, I grew Absolutely. up with, I, yeah, we raised daughters and, you know, there were days they got up and didn't want to go to school. It just didn't feel like it. And typical teenager stuff. So there's a difference there, correct? There is a difference when it becomes more consistent and it changes your personality. Um, just as you had mentioned, that's a really good point that everybody has blue days or you have some down days and especially, Ooh, all the hormones and everything that's going on in your life in middle school and high school. Um, you're going to have some of those days, but when it sticks around a lot longer and your personality changes, that's when it becomes a little more serious. Yeah, that's, that's, um, I think we're going to talk about this here in a little while, if that's okay. Um, at that time you said you took some, did you take steps to help manage that? You know what? In my small town, I really just thought, okay, I already feel different enough. So what am I going to do? Try to find therapy that really wasn't commonplace when I was growing up years and years ago. Um, so for me, I had to make sure that I exercised. Um, I also try to w watch my diet, but then that got into another um, kind of a roller coaster of emotions when I got into an eating disorder. So it manifested itself in another way. So instead of it helping, I actually kind of got into another area where I thought, okay, this is something I can control whether I'm bullied or not feeling good at school, this is something they can't take away from me. So that was another struggle that I went through. I know I know that you ended up going into a psychiatric ward and, and we can evolve mm -hmm. into that. But um, from, from the point that you were uh, in high school, you graduated at that Correct. time and then you decided to go to school for occupational therapy at that time? Sure. I, well, I actually went for... Um, Nursing first, uh, didn't like it, and then I went for um, therapeutic recreation, which is really a recreation therapist. And that's where I really, um, when I went off to college, I saw other people like me that were struggling to get out of bed, that maybe had some difficulties. And really, that's what saved me, was the support groups and some um, health counseling on campus um, when I was going through school that really um, 
really made the difference in my life. It really gave me a different outlook and searching that I wasn't alone in this. Um, and it kind of helped to find someone else that was going through the same kinds of things. Yeah, that's a positive thing, actually. There's too many mm-hmm. out there that uh, it gets slipped by the system. Either the system misses them or their parents miss them, their loved ones miss those signs. And I think we're going to talk about the signs here in a little while. Yeah. Um, but they miss those signs and they miss the opportunity to be able to to help somebody early on because Correct. mental health and mental health in this country unfortunately has um, a stigma against it and around it. Mm-hmm. And um, there are well, I won't say negativity kind of negative connotations, but mm-hmm. but in reality, there's negative connotations. If they have mental health issues or mental health problem, the first thing you think about is somebody's crazy. Mm-hmm. But that's not always the case, correct? Correct, and, and you're. You're right in saying that there is stigma and there is kind of a negative um, thought to it because um, I I say this in the book too. If we had a headache or if we had, let's say, a broken leg, I absolutely would go in and the signs would be more evident. This, because it's not as evident, there is some guilt and some shame. And I'm thinking, why can't I do? Why can't I get over this? Why? What am I doing wrong? Everybody else seems to look like they have everything under control, their lives, their families, their school, um, what's wrong with me? So you're right, there is some negative to it, because I'm thinking, um, what's wrong with me that I can't handle what everybody else is handling? Yeah, and that's, that's something that um, I think needs to be recognized in my profession. I dealt a lot with people with um, with the mental health issues, yes. from a variety of things between drug abuse and alcohol and domestic violence and, and suicide attempts and mm-hmm. suicide and things like this. So we we, we as the healthcare professional within the healthcare arena and those in law enforcement kind of look at it from a, from another perspective. And mm-hmm. sometimes even then it's not noticed correctly or not, not kind of observed or diagnosed correctly. So I think that it, uh, it kind of needs to be paid more attention to. You're right. You're right. What happened that took you to a psychiatric ward? Because that's a huge step to go from depression or anxiety or panic attacks to a psychiatric ward. Yeah, it is. And it took a number of um, years to kind of get there because I would do okay for a little while and then I'd have a lower point. But it took, um, I had a family by this time. I had graduated college. I had been working for a number of years. I had finished grad school. Um, I went through a divorce. And then um, I really, I talk about this in my book that I really lost my hats. And that was just the metaphor that I used that because I felt I wasn't a wife anymore. My kids were getting older. I didn't feel like I was the mom anymore. I was switching jobs. Um, I really couldn't find my identity. And that was a loss for me. Um, I had finally hit rock bottom. And I had told friends, if I ever talk about that, my kids would be better off without me or if I say something like I'm just I just want to sleep and not wake up, I had mentioned some things that um, were triggers or something that they would know as warning signs, and that's what happened. Was after the divorce and some changes in my life, I ended up um, saying those words, and my friends took me to an intake of a psychiatric hospital, and and that was the best thing for me at that time. Now, in, in that regard, I know there's differences in how somebody enters a facility like that. There, there's a psych hold, there's a 72-hour hold that law mm-hmm. enforcement use. That's what I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. Or there's a loved one that can take them in and, and say, look, this is, I think they're a harm to somebody or they're harm to themselves or harm to somebody else, and then they can put them in there. And you can go in there voluntarily. 
Correct. Um, had I been someone that was saying, having suicidal tendency, you're saying something that if I was going to hurt someone, myself or somebody else, they absolutely could have put me, if I had resisted, they could put me put me on a 72 hour hold because those words were said. Um, I did not resist though. So I went in um, voluntarily because I knew I had pretty much hit rock bottom and I was not thinking clearly. I wasn't really me anymore. And for me to say something like my kids would be better off without me, that absolutely is not the Sandy that we know. So um, I went in voluntarily. In a situation like that, I mean, I think you talked to about, in it, you mentioned the stuff that you sent to me that you said you felt like a square peg in a round hole. I did. I really did. Can you help us understand that a little bit more? Sure, sure. I think because, and it's interesting for me to actually look back, because I had worked in mental health for so many years, you would think that I, I know the triggers. I know the signs. I know really what you should be doing, what things are good coping skills for people. So I know it as a professional, but when I am looking in the mirror and just looking at myself, not the professional that should know everything that should be done, I really did feel like a square peg in a round hole because who knows better than me? But in the time, I'm not me. I didn't understand. I didn't realize how bad it had gotten. So I felt very odd that here I am, this health professional, actually working in mental health, and I could not recognize or really identify that I needed such help. You know, it, in that regard, do you feel, I mean, you've, I'm sure our listeners have heard of interventions. Do you think that somebody, when they get to that point, when they don't necessarily see that within themselves, that um, those that are observing it or participating in it from a familiar level or a friend or a colleague's level, that uh, would you recommend that they have some sort of an intervention? I do. I do. And I think people get thrown off by the word intervention. Like it has to be this formal, let's sit down, let's write letters, how things are going. I think it is actually just a wonderful gift that you can give to a colleague, a family member, a friend by saying, I'm noticing something different about you. Can we sit down and have a cup of coffee or can we talk about something? I care about you and I'm wondering what's going on in your life. So it doesn't have to be this formal intervention, but that's exactly what it is. It's just taking the time, providing a gift of care and letting them know that you're there and available to them. Yeah, that's a positive thing to do. I mean, the mental, as we said a little bit ago, mental health is, it cannot be looked at as, as uh, a negative and it cannot be looked at as a stigma. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a reaching, it's a hand that needs to be extended in mm-hmm. helping somebody move forward in a very positive way because we're all human beings and we all have obstacles that are presented to us at various times. And sometimes we need help over those obstacles. Yeah, we really do. And Michael, I'm glad you asked that question because some of us, when we're on the outside looking in and removing myself from the situation that we're talking about in my book, but if I see a friend or a colleague or a family member struggling, we sometimes pull back and think, no, I'm sure they're okay. Oh, I don't want them to get mad at me. Oh, I don't want to insult them or I don't want to make them feel bad. I would much rather have the wrath of someone being angry at me or um, maybe just uh, being a little bit embarrassed or whatever it might be, as opposed to someone hurting themselves. I will take that on um, without even a second thought, just knowing that letting them know I care. And that's really the whole purpose of it. Yeah, I am. From that perspective, I unfortunately had three of my close friends and colleagues that had committed suicide. Mm. And there were little subtle things that we noticed, but... They weren't so in your face, so to speak, sure. that that everybody thought, okay, you're just having a bad day type situation. And then, unfortunately, in law enforcement, you have to 
you have to mask. Mm-hmm. You, you yeah. can't be afraid. You can't cry. You can't show emotion. You have to be strong. You can't be weak. Kind of situation. So in those those instances, um, you know, even I regret not taking mm-hmm. an extra step in order to kind of say, "Hey, stop for a minute and really talk to me." Sure. Take sure. the time with me because there's three lives that are lost there, and it affected you know not only their family's lives but their extended family's lives. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's just a, it's a very take the time, take take the moment, you know, yeah. take the opportunity is what I'm thinking. Yeah, so worth so. It. Coming from one side of the door to the other, as you like in your book, mm-hmm. right? Coming from one right. side of the door to the other, what did you find the major differences are? Other than you know the fact that you knew the process, but once you got put into it yourself, what were you feeling? What happened? Oh wow, um, it's interesting because um, I would take groups when I was working on mental health units. I would take them through those metal doors, and um, they, we'd come from coping skills or self-care skills or just a number of different occupational therapy groups. And we go through those doors. Did I ever notice the clanging of those metal doors behind me? No. I'm bringing them in and I'm caring about my patients. Did I ever notice um, that Lysol or bleachy smell on the unit? No, I didn't. There were so many things I didn't notice. But Michael, as I came through as a patient, I didn't have my tennis shoes because you get taken, your belts get taken away, your shoelaces get taken away. So I have these little um, booties on that they provide to you. So I'm walking through as a patient and that clanging of that metal door behind me was so loud. You know that that feeling when you go to a rock concert and you kind of have that vibration in your ear? That's the loudness that I felt of this metal door that I had walked through a number of times. But as a patient, it was so loud. And then as I'm walking through the unit with my booties and I hear the shuffling on the tile floor, I'd never experienced that before because I'd had my shoes on because I was a health professional. And that smell of that Lysol, that sterile smell on the unit, I never noticed these things before. But it was like a sensory overload when I entered as a patient versus being a health professional. Amplified, probably the the unknown, the, Correct. the fear, the question, the, the fear, the everything, the unknown. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in your book, you talk about the first thing that they uh, took from you was basically everything. Yeah, and yes. I mean, you just mentioned that they, I think when you go behind that door, even when, like when I took somebody to jail for the first time, mm-hmm. we when they went in, we took their shoelace, we took their belt, we took the, anything mm-hmm. that they could hurt themselves with. They mm-hmm. got everything taken out of them. And then once they got on the other side of the door, the metal door, even in jail, mm-hmm. you know, their clothes were taken. They were searched. Then they were put into a, an orange jumpsuit and, the, and, and flip-flops. Mm-hmm. And you could see the just like you said a little bit ago, you could see the fear and the unknown and, and the anxiety right. that was going through that. So eventually you were able to work through that while you were in the facility, correct? I really was because I was now on the other side um, and I'm the recipient of some of these skill groups and some of these um, therapy groups where I had been leading these groups in the past. So there I sat in my, they, they dole out. I remember light blue scrubs was what I was wearing because they took away. And like you said, they took away all my clothes and my shoes. Um, But yeah, I was now the recipient of the therapy groups and really had to dig in and kind of figure out how I got there and how I was to get out. Did you find it difficult coming from that, that side of the chair 
to answer those questions? Like I know better. I, I know what I, I know what you're trying to do. I absolutely did. And I had to kind of the first day or two, though, I have to say, Michael, I was really numb. I, I wasn't really I was just kind of following the crowd going to get something to eat. I wasn't eating a whole lot. I really was numb because I it was almost like a shock factor. I couldn't believe that this is what had come to my to my daily life. And then when I was um, cognizant of what I was actually participating in, they'd say, okay, it's time for you to go to group. And I'd think, oh man, how many times did I say those words? So I'd sit there and they'd say, okay, I hear you saying, you know, and some of the stuff, some of the words I had said, and I'm thinking, oh man. And and so I had to push myself back and stop judging how they were being as a therapist and just really get to helping myself. So yes, you are right. I absolutely did. And I would watch their body language and think, oh, you shouldn't be crossing your arms because that's a sign that you're not open to the conversation. I'm thinking, stop it. Stop it. You're here as a patient. Stop judging that poor therapist. That actually really did help me. But yeah, that that was very difficult for me. That's an interesting process. What, what, if I can ask, what were you diagnosed with officially? Yeah, I had... um, depressive disorder and suicidal ideation because I had talked about suicide. So that wasn't a surprise to me that that's what happened. I didn't get the general anxiety disorder till I left because what was prominent at the time was the um, depressive disorder. Now, did they have tools in, within that facility to kind of help you start working through that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they had great groups. They figured out some medications that they had to level off and try with my body to see how they things would react. And um, they really made sure that I had great care. And um, I say it in my book, too, that really um, talk about heroes, both not only um, law enforcement, but both those that are in healthcare. They take the time to make sure that you feel um, kindness and love because you are at the bottom you're not feeling a whole lot or the opposite. You're feeling everything. So to have someone be caring for you and and walk alongside you on this really hard journey was amazing. It really was amazing. So they took the time and I was in for a little bit of a time. How long were you in for? I was actually in for 10 days. I should have probably been there longer, but the mom guilt started hitting and I thought, nope, I got to get home. My kids need me. So I wanted to leave after a week. And they said, you need to give us a few more days. We need to level out your medications and we want to make sure that you're okay because we don't want you um, coming back in as a frequent flyer, we used to say. People that get in for a little bit, leave and come back in. So um, I did. I gave them three more days and that was our compromise. And then I made sure that we were set up with a therapist and a psychiatrist as well that could really prescribe the meds and take a look at the meds as I was um, moving forward. And give you the tools to kind of move back into society yeah in a positive way absolutely in a positive way. did you go back into the 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 field the healthcare field I did I did I did it in a different way though because as soon as I got done um, I took that summer um, some time and then I went back and I worked in the schools so I had worked in both pediatrics and mental health and this felt like not quite a big jump it was way too close to home Michael for me to turn around and go back and work on a psych unit or work with mental health so for me I worked with kids and I didn't work with kids with extreme behavioral mental health issues I worked with autistic kids and kids with learning disabilities and so I worked in the schools for a little bit and then I slowly uh, merged back into my love of mental health let's talk about some of the methods that you've that you learned and you brought with you if you don't mind sure. what are the six W's of processing? Well, how about, how about I talk you through each one of them? Perfect. Love it. So let's talk about the six W's of processing. And I know one of them is 
when did I notice this feeling? Yeah, that's a great one. Um, just like we were talking about a little bit earlier, if it you find that it's more consistent, not just, oh, last Wednesday I had a bad day. If you are noticing the when, like, oh, man, I haven't been wanting to get out of bed since, wow, maybe two weeks ago. So look at the when. When did this all start happening for you? And if you're finding a pattern, you're finding some consistency, and it hasn't changed in a while, that's a good time to take a look and see, is there something really going on here, and do I need to seek help? That's a positive thing. It gradually moves into the second one. Who may have caused the feeling? Correct. If something has happened, if there's been a trauma, like for me, I went through a divorce. If there's a who behind it, if something happened, if you're in an abusive situation or you've just gone through some big transition in your life, if there's a who behind it, um, that's important to recognize that. Is this something that has harmed you in any way or is this something that you need to talk to that other person or is it something you stay totally away from that other person? So really take a look and see if that's been a trigger for you is that who that's in your life. And how about what happened to make me feel this way? Yeah, that's a great one. Back if it's a traumatic experience, if you've gone through something, um, one isolated incident, and it still is lingering on and it's been some time, that's a great one to take a look at. What happened? What occurred to make this change in your life? And then where is this coming from? Mm-hmm. Let's take a look. For me, um, and many of us that live in the Midwest, Um, Where is this coming from? It could be that you've been stuck in gray, freezing cold for a while, and it could be a seasonal effect disorder. You may have some depression that really comes from your environment. So where, when you get down to the nitty gritty of where is this coming from? Is it from an incident? Is it from your environment? So where is this really um, occurring? And if it's something within you that you've seen despite gray days, sunny days, that's a, that's a really good point to start from, to take a look. Where is this coming from? And when did these feelings begin? Yeah, yeah. Again, taking a look at that timeline. You know what? I'm noticing that after I had that huge fight with my family, I've just not been the same. I've not been the same. So when did this start happening? And if you look back, I'm a journalist. Right? I can look through my journals and go, oh, yeah, I see. Back May of 2018, oh, that was an awful time because I was out of a job or I was this or that. Or many of us are looking at, oh, when COVID hit, a number of things changed in me. So, yeah, it's important to look at the when. It could change a lot of us. Mm -hmm. And, And finally, why does this bother me so much? Yeah, when we can't get over something. Why? Why is it bothering me so much? And you have to dig a little bit deeper. For me, I had to look at the why because of what I had gone through in my life. It had been a trigger for me to feel unworthy, to feel bullied, to feel different. And so when things occurred and everybody else in my life was married, no one else was going through divorce, I had to look a little bit deeper in myself and kind of figure out why and where is this coming from. And all these steps they can find in your book, too. Yes, yes. Yeah, I just wanted to kind of touch upon them a little bit. Give some some of our listeners something to think about. You know, each one of these six, six W's, Right, right. And it's one of those things that you don't have to have all six. Um, At times in my life, it's been just the why where I kind of dig and then I find out that, oh, something's not going well or the when. So it's again, you don't have to have all six. It's just little points of interest where you can take a closer look at yourself and really kind of dig in. You had mentioned during this last part of this conversation, you mentioned journaling, that you were a journalist. So Mm -hmm. 
from a different perspective, I think to understand a journalist in a very unique way. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah, I found um, journaling to kind of be my outlet when I was feeling very alone, very isolated. That's a place that I considered to really be my my refuge. I could write whatever I wanted without judgment, um, without anybody really looking at it, and I could really expose my true feelings. However, looking back at my journals, I could see some really darkness happening in my history. So for me, journaling was a place where I could go and just let all my feelings come out. So I use journaling, however, in my practice. I teach and I'm also a program director, but I also have a mental health practice. And I use journaling really um, kind of as a cathartic process. And people will say, oh, I don't like to journal or I I don't want to put my feelings down. So they use it more as kind of a drawing format. So they might draw pictures and then they might put some subtitles of what the drawing really means to them. So it doesn't have to be word by word. It doesn't have to be complete sentences. It can be bullet points. It can be drawing. It can be a number of different things, but it's really just about putting your feelings down on paper and having a place for those feelings to come out. So it's kind of a self-care process then to be able to sit down, take a notebook and just kind of write down your feelings, write down your thoughts every day. Yes, absolutely. And that's one of those things that I tell my, um, my patients that don't put boundaries on it. So don't think, oh, if someone finds this, then I can't be totally honest. Or if I don't write every day, I've blown it. This is for you. This is to help you cope. So don't just have freedom when you're using it. Don't put heavy boundaries on it because you won't continue with it. If you write once a week, great. Some weeks you might need it twice a day. So just have it to be a free extension of what you need. Again, just let your feelings go. This is for you. This is for you to help get you through tough times or good days. How has it changed your life? Oh, my. This is how the book came about. I actually was um, moving. And I was moving from um, Minnesota to Florida. And I found a bunch of old journals. And I started looking through them. And I thought, oh, my. I was in a really dark place. Or look how far I've come from my divorce and from growing up. And that's how the book had started, Michael, was really kind of looking into those journals and thinking, look at the growth that has happened from all those dark days that I was writing about. And I actually put some of those poems and some of my journal entries into my book. Speaking of poetry, tell me about the power of poetry. Yeah. Um, I used to think it all had to rhyme. It all had to be in the same kind of cadence, so to speak, um, because that's what we're used to in little childhood poetry. But really, it was just, for me, a deeper expression. Journaling is wonderful, but for me, I like the gift of poetry because it has an ending and a beginning and an end, but it has um, a rhythm to it, I feel. Not the cadence that I was talking about, but more of a rhythm of um, kind of your journey going through something and the ups, the downs, and again... I've mentioned this before, but there's no boundaries. I could write whatever I wanted in my poetry, and it was mine because it was authentic to me. This works. You think that can help other individuals to pick up oh, the poetry? It really can. And again, one of those other things that I say, don't judge it. Just write it. Just write it. That's a good idea. What are the one-offs? The one-offs are those things that I kind of put at the end of my book because if you've tried journaling and say, oh, that's not for me. Well, it might not be for you now. Or you've tried exercise and being out in nature. You've tried a number of different things, and those just are not working. I give the one-offs. Those are things like picking up the phone and calling a friend. Um, Maybe going and buying yourself a new outfit. 
maybe looking at old pictures, maybe um, going through and looking at um, old things in your in your closet. It, it sounds funny, but I remember going through my old outfits and going, oh, I remember bringing a baby home in that t-shirt. Or I remember those shoes because I used to walk uh, fi- my first 5K. Or, so one-offs are really just things that seem silly, but they actually take you out of that really dark time or it just gives you a new perspective. So that's it's those things that you just don't even really think about. That may seem odd, but you try them and you go, that really helped. Even if it's for a few minutes or for an hour or two, it's things that can really help you. It's the little things. It is the little things. You're right, Michael. So there are three golden rules of self-care. I mean, I, I use a methodology to maintain my health and manage my rheumatoid arthritis. My listeners know that for the last 87 episodes that I really um, am strict about what I eat, how I exercise, my sleep, you know, my meditation, mm-hmm. and so forth. So what are the three golden rules of self-care in regard to mental health? Um, the first one, really recognize yourself. Recognize the strength in yourself. You may be more powerful than you think you are. So recognize that in you. If you feel like you've hit rock bottom and um, you need to ask for help, imagine the strength that's behind that. That takes strength to reach out for that. The other thing is making sure that you're taking good care of yourself. And that goes to what you were just mentioning. If you're eating right, if you're exercising, that's important too, because what happens in your gut happens in your mind. Next one is connect, connect, connect. Make sure you're making connection. It is so much easier to isolate yourself and just say, you know what? I don't want to bother with anything. Make sure you stay connected because those are the people that may come to your rescue And those are the people that you may need to be able to get you out of this. Those are amazing golden rules. Yeah. So as we spoke about throughout this podcast, you are an author. You wrote a book. So let's talk about your book a little bit. Sure. It is called On the Other Side, A Brown Girl's Journey to Find Hope Through Depression. And what I really liked about it was I kept it true to me. I didn't follow anybody else's format. I found those journals and um, I really kept them true to um, what I was going through at the time. So I talk about growing up in Southern Minnesota, like we talked about, and then just my journey from feeling unworthy and being bullied and um, all the way through my experiences in college and finding actually um, others that were like me that were going through some tough times. And then um, finding myself on the other side of that door as a psychiatric patient versus a psychiatric um, healthcare provider. So it's really about my journey. And the main thing is, is me finding hope through all of it. Because when you're on that unit, you think, has my life really ended? My life was saved by being on the unit, but am I going to be a totally different person? And not to say that's a bad thing to change some things in your life, but to realize there is hope. This is not the end of your journey. There's hope after that. That's amazing. And I'll have linked to where to find that in the show notes, by the way, and we can talk about it here in a second. Can you help us with what are some common signs of mental illness? Sure, sure. It depends. And it's hard to um, really talk about just one specific diagnosis because there's a number of diagnoses out there. But I would say that um, if you're noticing a change, as we talked about earlier, you used to be this outgoing, um, very vibrant type person. You um, have lots of friends and you find yourself in bed, isolating, not wanting to do anything, not wanting to be with anyone. Um, That is a sign of something deeper. If you find also that um, your life patterns have changed, let's say you used to eat three meals a day or some snacks, and now you're finding, I'm not hungry. 
I haven't eaten in a couple days. You find you're not showering. You're not taking care of yourself. You're not going for walks. You're not exercising. So you're noticing big changes in what used to be. Um, that is also a big sign. Another thing is if you're finding that you have very high, high days and then other days, low, low days, this could be a, be a sign of some mental illness where I've not normally been that. I've usually been pretty, I mean, we all have happy days and we all have um, sad days, but when it seems to go very high and you're doing things that might be very impulsive, that may be a trigger of something deeper happening. Yeah, I think, I think, and I'll have some of those signs maybe in the show notes so that everybody can kind of keep aware because That'd mental be illness, especially this last year with COVID, I'm sure that has mm. increased um, mental illness, mental health in some form or another over the last year because there were people that were thrust into a, a situation where they are like um, introverts, extroverts, excuse me, that were forced to become introverts and just didn't know what to expect or what to do with themselves. Yeah, um, it, it's really been, this year has been, um, I had a small private practice, but it's really increased and I have like a waiting list now because of COVID. And I think it's absolutely that. Not only the extroverts are really figuring out I wasn't meant to be home full time, but also the introverts that found that, um, you know what, I've done this for quite a while um, and this seems normal to me, but I still miss people. Um, and that doesn't mean you have to, engage in big parties or anything, but we seem to need and we hunger for community. And that could be as simple as just going to a store and seeing others around you. So my practice has increased because of this transition of the unknown and the fear. And so now there's anxiety with it. And not only that, we're not used to being on a screen talking to people. We're used to being in person with people. And a number of my high school students, as well as college students that I have in my practice, they're missing it. They're missing community and being in a classroom again. So yeah, it is very important to kind of reach out because um, things have very much changed over this last year because of COVID. Yeah, I think for, and some things for the better, some things for the negative. I mean, it's from our perspective, um, I, I retired. And because I retired, I spent a lot of time at home anyway, but sure. I keep myself busy with other things. And with the mm -hmm. podcast, I talk to people all over the world, mm -hmm. um, Australia and Korea and China, not China, but uh, Australia, Korea, uh, mm. Taiwan and uh, Japan and uh, England and Ireland uh, and Canada wow. been in Spain. It's been, to mm. me, I've had an opportunity, even though it was across the screen, it kept me busy. Yes. My wife worked at home for over a year. Um, mm -hmm. which was great. The dog and I loved it. <laughs> we, <laughs> we had lunch every day, you know, we got to watch some cartoons and you know, we watch eat like American Dad. I better clarify that American, occasionally Bugs Bunny, but American <laughs> Dad and, you know, things like this. But it, but it was great. It was, a, it was a nice change back into our lives because for 31 years, we've always worked outside of the home in separate areas. And we had a few hours at home and sleeping time. And all of a sudden we're here, which was for us, it was a dynamic that changed for the positive. Sure. Actually. Yeah. But I know people who are biting at the bit because they were going, no, I don't like this. And this is driving me crazy. And I don't want to be here in this house anymore. And sure. I need to go back to work. I need to, you know, go back and go to the restaurants and go, you know, go shopping and do this and do that. So, yeah, yeah, but kudos for you for having a, a facility and an opportunity for people to come work their way through that. Yeah, it's been it's been um, 
really a gift to be able to provide um, some of those outlets. And it's funny that you mentioned that there are positives to it. I have um, two dads right now and in my caseload, and it's part of one of a, a group that I hold. And they're really having a hard time because they are having to go back to work. And they have loved the gift of being home with their children and helping them homeschool and what they first thought was going to be this awful transition. They absolutely had this wonderful gift of being home and watching their children. When else do we get to have this opportunity where we're involved in their schooling or involved in the day-to-day? Um, so they're having a hard time saying, I don't want to go back to work like it was. I actually kind of want to have some time at home so I don't miss anything else. So you're right. There are very much positives within this. Yep. I enjoyed that very much when I when I got injured and when I was forced to stay home. Because when I got injured, I was retired with a disability. Okay. So I came home. Um, I became the at home dad. Mm-hmm. And I had my transition and I had my anger, I had my depression, had my everything that went mm-hmm. with losing my job, losing my career, being diagnosed being in a wheelchair for the rest of my life, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. I'm not, by the way, most of my listeners know this, but it, from a father's perspective, it was great because I got to watch my kids grow up and I typically yeah. had that opportunity to do that. And you know, there's fathers out there that are going, well, you know, yeah, this is the man's job to go to work and then do this and do that and do that and then kind of thing. But it's not. It's a mutual thing between the parents and both parents should have the opportunity to enjoy yeah. raising their children right, into adults right. and staying mm-hmm. an active participant in that. That's just a personal level. Sorry that. <laughs> no, that is, that's uh, great. And that really helps um, because that's a perspective that I'm hearing from more and more people that were home. Yeah, it, from from so from us, it worked out really well. Actually, we got the backyard redone. We got a living space <laughs> out there. <laughs> but back to the show. So this is one more thing before you go. Anything that you would like to say? Any words of wisdom that you'd like to share with anybody? Yeah, I want to let people know. Even though I was a health professional working in mental health, I still had that stigma, which is something that I would have never have guessed because that was my my field of work. But as a patient or someone going through it, I had that stigma of, oh, no, I should be able to handle this or, oh, how embarrassing will that be or shame and guilt of having to seek help. Put that aside. That is baloney. We all deserve to have the health care that we need. We all deserve to feel good about ourselves. We all deserve a chance at finding hope and finding joy again. So I would say, remove all that aside. Don't let that stigma stay in your way. Go seek the help. Go ask a friend. Go find what you need to find joy again in your life. Outstanding. Thank you very much. There you need to look for the book on the other side. I will have links in the show notes about that and a link to contact you uh, and figure out, find out more about your practice as well as how to kind of learn more about your book and your journey yourself. So, Sandy, thank you very much for taking your time. Thank you for sharing your journey and your experience. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go, have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast is a creation of One More Thing Productions, 
Established 2010. All rights reserved.